Welcome to episode 16 of the Echo Ever Proudly podcast. I'm Brian Egan from the class of 86. Welcome back. Hope you and yours had a wonderful holiday season. We begin our second semester with part one of a two-part visit with Gonzaga basketball icons. You may have heard on Tuesday the 11th of January, this year's top-ranked Gonzaga basketball team knocked off DeMatha 87-73 at the Carmody Center. For many who remember what iStreet was like 50 years ago, what we saw streaming that game from around the world Tuesday was remarkable. The disciplined play of Coach Turner's Eagles, the teamwork, the hustle, the sportsmanship, the athleticism, huge three-pointers, that dunk from Evans. Just an incredible performance. Sure, it was strange without our student body going crazy, but as the camera panned and kept showing the huge eagle on the far wall, above the parents and attendants, Seeing those banners gave all of us watching online an immense sense of pride. But if you're new to Gonzaga, you've never had any prior connection to this school. Know this, it wasn't always this way. It wasn't that long ago when Gonzaga basketball games were always away games. That wall now adorned with dozens of championship mementos did not exist. It's a testament to the difference the Carmody Center gift made to Gonzaga and the many gifts from alumni since. And it's also a tribute to the legacy of our guests this week. Guests who made their mark before and after the Carmody Center opened in 1977. Legendary Hall of Fame coach Dick Myers, Coach Bill Wilson, John Williams, Marty Favret, and Tom Sluby from the class of 1980. Now in part two of this two-part visit next week, we'll get to the legendary game against DeMatha at DeMatha in 1980. But this week, let's start at the beginning. Coach Bill Wilson... You arrived on Ice Street first. Describe what things were like before Coach Myers arrived and the Carmody Center was built. Well, I came in uh, 1970. You know, the school was, you know, run down. There was good spirit there, you know, good, good students. We had no gym. Uh, within three years, I was a college counselor for two or three years. Our enrollment had dwindled to about 87 kids. So you knew that we were heading in the wrong direction. And there was some talk about us closing. And they had a hard time keeping faculty because they couldn't pay very much. I believe Father Dooley came in 1974. Is that right, Dick? I believe so. He was there when I got there in 75, Billy. We began to see a, um, a turnaround when Father Dooley came, you know, hired Dick. You know, when we had open house, we used to bypass the old gym because we didn't want to, you know, turn off any prospective basketball players because it was such a primitive place to play. But that began to change a little bit. Um, well, it began to change a lot when Father Dooley came and then Dick was hired. It started us down the road to um, make some real headway in, in our basketball program. Bill, describe the challenges of practice in the old gym for those who have no idea what that space was like. At one end, there were bleachers. At the other end, it was a 45-degree angle ramp. So when you did layups, you had to be careful not to break your ankle. You know, So it was hard to concentrate on shooting a good layup. The walls were out of bounds. Uh, it was linoleum tile for a floor, so it wasn't great on the knees and the, and the uh, ankles. And maybe Dick can talk a little bit about some of the adjustments he made in practicing in the old gym in terms of um, laying out a court, a half court, so you could get used to uh, spacing that would be available on a regular court. But uh, Dick, you can speak to when you came in in the fall of the 75, is that right? Correct. What yep. you inherited and you know what your vision was and before Tommy, Marty, and um, Johnny came. Thank you, Billy. The... Uh... The first thing we did was we handed out, I'm not making this up now, we handed out a book called Psycho-Cybernetics, and it's, to get, it's definitely mind over matter. And I specifically had in mind the old gym. I remember I said, this is not 
a wall that went up to the wall. Now it's about a little over 30 feet from one wall out of bounds to the other one. From now on, it's out of bounds, out of bounds. And I can remember with my very first team, the year before Tommy and Johnny and Marty got there, five on five, it's, you couldn't do it. Billy's working with the guards one end, I'm working with the bigger guys at the other end, you know, a little three on three, two man game stuff. I hear this ouch, and I look down, and I'm almost sure it's Joe Mesmer, it's the player. And I look down, and he's holding in his head. I said, Joe, are you okay? And he says, I am, coach. I hit my head on the out-of-bounds line. So anyway, it was starting to sink in a little bit. I'm sure these guys will mention a few things about it. But the other thing is it used to flood. We had Tiber Creek running underneath. When it rained a little too hard or whatever time of year, you never knew when you have a puddle down at the other end. And I used to have my manager stand guard over that puddle. We'd be shooting, practicing at one end, <laughs> and he'd be there. In case the ball got loose, he would be like a soccer goalie. <laughs> guard. <laughs> so, so the conditions oh, yeah. obviously were not ideal. Not at all. Not at How all. soon did you sort of – no, especially after Buchanan Field went in. When were you hearing from Father Dooley that what would become the Carmody Center was, quote, on its way? Was was that pretty quickly after the time you started coaching? My first meeting with him, and he said, well, what do you think? I said, Father, we need a place to play. These guys deserve to have home games. And this is just what I said. I don't care if it's one of, you know, those tennis bubbles that they have sure. during the winter. I don't care if it's one of those tennis bubbles that we put up in the parking lot. We got to start having home games. And, of course, John Carmody and uh, his wonderful family donated the uh, the startup money for that, uh, for the Carmody Center. Yep. All right, let's pivot to the players now. Let's start with John Williams from the class of 1980. What's running through your mind as you decide you're going to attend Gonzaga? You know, as a basketball player, there's going to be some challenges with the facilities on I Street. Two of my older brothers had gone through Gonzaga, so I was familiar with the facilities. <laughs> One of the things I think that happened coming out of eighth grade, coming out of West Sacramento, was St. Stephen's the year before. Dick had taken the team that the year previously, 75-76 team, they go out and win the St. Stephen's tournament, win the Sleepy Thompson, uh, which, was a, which was a big turnaround from what Gonzaga had been seeing. They went 16 and 11, maybe, Dick. Is that probably right? That's uh, correct. As an eighth grader and choices as to where to go to school, Gonzaga wasn't really number one on the list, other than the, with the positives that had happened with Dick coming in, Will Morris coming in to coach football, it made it much more pal. You know, coming out of BS, I mean, half the kids went to St. John's, half went to Gonzaga, and the rest of them went to Prep, right? I mean, so Prep had a good program. Coach Gallagher had a good program, a great program at St. John's. And so it was kind of faith in what was going on at, at the turnaround. Now, Tom, unlike John Williams and Marty Favret, you didn't have older brothers that attended Gonzaga, but you did have a family nearby, the Reapings, who had kids who were going to Gonzaga. Yeah, the Reaping family. So I lived on Mills Avenue in Northeast Washington, D.C., and they lived at the top of the hill, at the top of the street. And they went to St. Francis. There were several reapings. I think in total, there may have been 12. So I met them, uh, obviously, at St. Francis. I went to school with uh, Rini. She was in my class. Greg, I became friends with. And then Tom, I became friends with as well. 
So I got to know them really well. They were going to Gonzaga and the girls were going to uh, Notre Dame Academy. I was going to go to Carroll. I, I think Mrs. Reaping was talking to my mother a lot about trying to get me to go to Gonzaga. Now, Coach Myers, were you aware of Tom Sluby, the basketball player? Had you seen him play at all before he got to Gonzaga? No, Brian, I did not. I knew from Greg Reaping. I think it was Greg, Tommy. Uh, he, he was ahead of you, I believe, yeah. in school, that you were coming. The first time, Brian, that I saw Tommy was the, one of the first days of school, and he was walking through the corridors, and he was carrying a basketball underneath his arm. Now, obviously, he had books in the other arm, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's the first time I met him. He was walking through the corridor with basketball under his arm. Now, Marty, you guys are all freshmen. Was there a separate freshman team at the time? Yeah, uh, Mike Howell is our coach. You know, going back to those first couple of weeks, you know, Billy talked about the spirit. And, and like Johnny, I, I'd had four brothers go there before me, but it wasn't about the old gym. It was about the quad. I mean, that's where the legends were made. And that's the allure that as an eighth grader, I just kept hearing about these, these games in the quad. And, and I really do think that's the first time I saw Tommy play against some of the older guys. But uh, no, it was, uh, we had a freshman team, a JV team. We all practiced in the old gym. I think the freshman team, we got about 35 minutes and then uh, then we were off. You know, like Johnny was saying, it's just kind of what we knew. There was no talk at the Carmody Center in our freshman year. It was a big buzz the next year, but it was uh, going to a school that we'd heard great things about and getting a chance to make history with some really special people. You asked Dick about, um, did he see me play in the eighth grade? And I don't think I was on anyone's radar, to be honest with you. I was a swimmer and I was a pretty good swimmer. And I was thinking seriously about making a run at swimming. And I just picked up the basketball bug through the course of my eighth grade year. And then that summer, Langdon Park had a fabulous summer league. And so I got to see, and Dick, you'll remember some of these names, Tony Ellis, Delonte Taylor. You know, there were a number of folks in my neighborhood who were really good basketball players. And I got to watch them play. And I got more attracted to basketball through the course of that summer. And then when I got to Gonzaga, in my opinion, I didn't necessarily come with a whole lot of skills, but Dick and, and Billy in particular helped me develop, you know, my, my basketball skills. Tom, give us an example. Billy really helped me develop my jab step and jab step ball fake, jab step drive, you know, everything that comes off the jab step. Well, he actually spent a lot of time with me perfecting that. And when I got to Notre Dame, I remember there were games where we would watch um, the video after the games and someone would be rushing at me and I'd jab step them and they would just stop in their tracks. And that was all because, you know, Billy Wilson taught me how to how to do the jab step correctly. Who taught the better drop step, Bill or uh, Big Blue? Well, Big Blue was a was a you know, he, he he played the position. And so he you know, I thought he was a pretty good teacher at the at the drop step. Jim or no Jim, it's it comes down to coaching, right? It comes down to a lot of things, coaching. How much time do you, you know, you get better away from the season uh, most of the time. The things that I learned during the season in practice, if I could take those after the season and work on them, it was going to help me get better. The more you played, you know, the better you were probably going to get. Now, Tom, how much do you think that swimming background 
helped you on the court in terms of your stamina, maybe your shoulder strength, maybe those lungs in the fourth quarter when everyone else is grabbing their shorts? Yeah, I think it helped a lot. I didn't realize it did, but but I, I you know, I didn't stop swimming um, once I got to Gonzaga. Billy, Billy and I used to go to Catholic U and we'd swim, you know, he'd go up there and work out and sometimes I'd go and swim while he was working out and doing his swimming. And some, I remember in the summertime, Dick, I remember being in a pool, I think at your place and butterfly across the pool. I had just moved out of the DC to Alexandria Park Fairfax. And there was a pool, community pools right across the street. There were people around the pool and there, Tommy dives in the pool and does the butterfly. And you should the waves that came oh, yeah. up on that pool and people all there, they're looking up and, and he did the same thing coming back. That is probably, I don't know what swimming stroke would be harder on a swimmer than the butterfly, but Tommy had it done. It was beautiful. I mean, I couldn't do what he did with beautiful stroke. So anyway, I remember that. Very well. Didn't Tommy, Tommy Reaping used to um, take Tommy Sluby to the University of Maryland, Bird Stadium, and he would run the steps with a weighted jacket on, if I'm not mistaken. So, John, did you and Marty ever join Tom for those stair runs at Bird Stadium? Tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> hey, seriously, the weighted vest concept in the 1970s was new. We all see people wearing them now, but that was a really innovative thing. Who inspired that, Tom? It was a gift from Tom Reaping. He went and found this 50-pound weighted vest. It actually had sandbags in it. Actually, you tied it um, right below the chest. And when I would run, the sandbags would bang up against my stomach. So I got a little bit of a stomach workout. I would run, you know, Bird Stadium in a 50-pound weight jacket. And we'd do it three, four times a week. Tom Reaping kind of started it. But, you know, Rod Camp was a part of that. And there were other folks who I was working out with during the summers as well. So it was... Everything from that kind of running to a lot of sit-ups and push-ups to um, a lot of basketball. We played 10, 12 hours of basketball a day. And then as far as John was concerned, it was psycho-cybernetics. He, he saw himself <laughs> running the stairs, but he never came to do it with us. All right, let's dial in those memories from sophomore year. The Carmody Center is being built. It's got to be a huge lift for the entire Gonzaga community, especially for you guys as the basketball players, right? I don't know that it did for us as students. I think it did for the community as a whole. The gym came in December of 1977. We, we were sophomores. We had a, a probably the, the best team that Gonzaga's put on the floor in a long time, right? I mean, Carl Hicks and David Ridley, Glenn, Tommy Veith, Slub, and myself. We were we had we were formidable. Yeah, you know, we gave everybody a game. Other than maybe we went out to high school and ran into uh, to that bus all one time. Probably the best players, best coach team that that Gonzaga had put on the floor in. 20 or 25 years. So really the perfect timing for the arrival of the gym because the program is ascendant. John, you remember what it was like, the crowd, that first home game? Standing room only, out the door, up into the Kozik Lounge. It was electric. And we took, you know, with everybody to the wire if we didn't beat them. But that excitement didn't just stop on I Street. Everywhere we played, those people followed us. So I think it changed the atmosphere, not just within the students or the players. But, you know, that obviously happened. That, that changed the, the attitude uh, on I Street. Coach Wilson, as the Carmody Center opens, how much is that changing the way you guys run practice now that you have so much more room? 
I think the core of it stayed the same, but you could work against the press full court. You know, you could, you know, you could get up and press, you know, you had so much more width and length. It was just, it was almost like being on Mars after being in that, you know, dungeon for so many years. So I don't know if you can speak to that, Dick, but it just, I mean, you had coached in some, um, you know, obviously some bigger places, you know, when you, you know, played ball and, and coached a Catholic, but um, it was just, you know, I kept on um, pinching myself. I couldn't believe it, you know, that we actually had a, a, a gym that we could be proud of and that we'd, you know, people would come and see us play and we'd have home games. And then Dick used to hit the snack bar at the halftime. You know, I had, I had to drag him back into the <laughs> locker room. That is not true. So <laughs> we used to go to the summer leagues and play against the best competition. I think in the, uh, if not just in DC, but maybe in the East Coast, working on the off season. But I think um, you know it's just the repetition. Coach Myers is a master teacher in terms of putting the whole you know uh, offense and defense together and then breaking down into different drills. And we got better as the year progressed. You could just see us getting better. I think their uh, junior year, I think we broke through and, and beat St. John's. It may have been at good council. That may have been our big wins. We took DeMatha to the wire at home. And I think Tommy probably went for uh, 28 to 36, something like that. But it was just, you know, you can, and guys played their roles. You know, uh, Johnny was a master at delivering the ball on time. Marty kept defenses on, honest and a lot of the other guys. Um, it, you could just see the, you know, the repetition. You know, Dick used to say, you know, repetition is the mother of all learning. I mean, I was a privilege to just see this unfold. As he taught, we made mistakes. Johnny would know he was very, very uh, hard on point guards. He had to take care of the ball. He played to our strengths. I mean, he, you know, we weren't going to be, a, a, you know, an up and down press pressing kind of team, but we had a really, we executed half court, uh, mixed up man to man and our, our little ball zone defenses, uh, monster defense. So I don't know. It was just after being in the doldrums for so long, it was almost like I was a kid in a candy store, just seeing this, just happy to be part of this. It just really started coming together. But there's a lot of hard work that was put in. These three guys here and, and, and their teammates. Coach Myers, explain what Bill just referred to. What is this monster defense? Can you describe it for us? We usually put our best and smartest athlete in the middle, plays the point, but he has to cover. He has to drop low, come high. He has to talk to the other players on the team. And... As Coach Wilson said, ball, we would like ball, and that would be what, where he, wherever he's playing, we would adjust. We had a game against Mackin, and John's father, Tom, wonderful man, rest his soul, uh, Johnny's father said, come on, John, you got to try harder, something to that. Uh, Johnny looked up at him and said something that wasn't very nice. He sassed his father. He didn't swear, but he, he gave his father a little sass. So I took him out of the game, and he's sitting down on the bench, and he says, why did you take me out of the game, coach? I said, don't talk back to your father. <laughs> and, and I look up, and I had no monster in my zone. So Marty stepped in. Marty, do you want to take it from there? I at least knew what I was doing. I wasn't physically... I wasn't John Lala and I, and I wasn't John, but I jumped in and I, I, I yelled ball as loud as I could. I was good. at that. <laughs> Then I hear Dick had been addressing Johnny. He turns to Bill and he goes, what the hell is Marty doing at the monster? <laughs> I, I'm still seeing a psychiatrist to get over the shame of that. Comment. <laughs> I think we got to stop. And, um, 
And yeah, that was Johnny Dawkins and a few cats running around for Mac and back in the day for sure. (laughs) That's hilarious. John, do you feel like Coach Myers, now that he had the Carmody Center and all this room, do you feel like he made you guys practice harder or more? Uh, Coach Myers believed that we should practice every day. So that was Christmas Eve, Christmas Day, New Year's Eve, New Year's Day. I got up before Santa Claus got to the house. (laughs) You practiced once on Christmas Day. One time. (laughs) My mom still doesn't forgive you for that. I know. (laughs) Rick Pitino was at BU at the time, right? They were in our league. And he was giving a speech one time. He says, you know, I don't know what people think I'm crazy because I practice, you know, on Christmas. But it was for two hours, 8 to 10, 12 to 2, 4 to 6, 8 to 10. (laughs) Now, in part two of our visit with these guys next week, we're going to get into that iconic win over DeMatha in 1980 and the incredible picture of Tom high above the rim from that game. But, Tom, I can tell you want to say something. Go ahead. I wanted to say something about Father Dooley because I remember my very first meeting with Father Dooley before I got into Gonzaga. I came down and met with him. My mother was with me. We spent maybe an hour, hour and a half together, got to know each other. Um, I was a shy kid back then, and he was just a wonderful person, you know, when I met him back in the eighth grade. So that was special for me. Um, Someone who we have not mentioned, who was really, really important and special for me, um, important to my development um, as a person was Stu Long. You know, Dick introduced me to Stu Long my freshman year. And um, right away, you know, Stu Long is one of those people who's going to challenge you right away. So he's challenging me in all different kinds of ways. And and then we're talking about, okay, you've got to work construction. You need to get stronger. You're not strong enough. But Stu Long was a terrific person, just a, a wonderful human being cared a lot about me, you know, as a person. And it wasn't so much about me as a basketball player, but it was me as a person and trying to develop me as a person. And, you know, I don't think, I don't think I'd be where I am without, uh, without Stu Long having been in my life. Tommy, do you want to tell them the story of how uh, the car that you drove to your senior prom? <laughs> tell and, them and, and how you got it? You know, I, I don't exactly remember the I got it. Stu said, Tommy, if you, I forget, I think we were playing prep for somebody that he really wanted to be. If you get a triple double, you can have my car for the senior prom. Now, Stu's idea of a triple double, more than 20 points, 20 rebounds, obviously more than 10 assists. Well, Tommy had the triple double, I think, finished by the end of the third quarter <laughs> and I can remember you coming back to the bench and get a big grin on your face because you knew you had a car for the senior prom yeah he had a 450 SL Mercedes-Benz oh my god <laughs> that was a it was a really nice car and you got married the day of our prom so John and I, we were altar boys at your wedding and then uh, John and I actually went to the prom together in Stu's car. For those of us who knew Stu, that is such a great story, Tom. We're going to pick up next week with part two of our two-part visit with these basketball icons, and we're going to get into that incredible win from February of 1980 when these guys went out to Hyattsville and became the third school ever to win a basketball game against DeMatha at DeMatha. 
As always, we love the feedback. You can shoot me an email, podcast at gonzaga.org. If you haven't already, be sure you're subscribing to the Echo Ever Proudly podcast wherever you get your podcast. Be sure to rate and review. That helps us with the algorithms. And until next time, ad maorium dei gloriam and hail Gonzaga. Oh.